One of my rules of public speaking is that, I mean, it's important that I give people what they want, but my primary rule is that I need to be having a good time. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting to tell the stories I want to tell, and I'm getting to make jokes and make people laugh, and that makes me happy. So that's my priority, and I figure, hey, if I'm having a good time, then the audience will be having a good time. If you're someone who refuses to go along to get along, if you question whether the status quo is good enough for you and your family, you want to leave this world better off than you found it, and you consider independence a sacred thing, you may be a prepper, a gardener, a homesteader, a survivalist, a farmer, a rancher, an environmentalist, or a rugged outdoorsman. This show is for those who choose the road less traveled, the road to self-reliance, for those living a daring adventure, life off the grid. Clay Hyman is a carpenter, stonemason, and welder who has farm, garden, and house construction experience on two continents for over 40 years. He was a double major in design and horticulture from NCSU. Frank believes in happy wife, happy life. So when his wife, Chris, wanted chickens, he knew they would have chickens, but also wanted to be able to go on two-week vacations. He wrote a column about it, how he achieved both goals for Chickens Magazine, and the columns became the book, Hintopia, Create a Hassle-Free Habitat for Happy Chickens, 21 Innovative Projects. Hopefully we can get Frank to tell us about it. Frank's writing appears in the New York Times, Organic Gardening, Hobby Farms, Modern Farmer, as well as Chickens Magazine and CommunityChickens.com. He's been without a day job since 1992, when he first put together a plan to make a living from his hobbies. He launched an award-winning garden design plant build business, Cottage Garden Landscaping, which is located in Durham, North Carolina. Frank Hyman, welcome to the Off the Grid Biz Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Brian. Glad to be here. Yeah, and the reason why we reached out to you is we found you on the list of speakers for the Mother Earth News Fair that's happening in Albany, Oregon. And we saw that you're actually you, that you've been speaking at a lot of the Mother Earth News Fairs. Taking good care of me. Mother Earth News does a really good job with these fairs. I'm very happy to be a part of that. Oh, fabulous! So, so why don't you let us know a little bit more about who you are and what you do? When I was in my 20s, I was a very successful college dropout and traveled around a lot, had a lot of interesting jobs, and realized uh, what I wanted out of life wasn't a career, but I wanted to make a living for my hobbies. Fortunately, some of those hobbies are uh, have made me a good living, so carpentry and design and the writing, among other things. Instead, I met my wife. Uh, she's also a designer. She designs books. Both had worked on farms in our younger days, and so even though we live in downtown Durham, on a little quarter-acre lot, we like having a little tiny farm. And so when she wanted chickens, it was like, okay, we'll have chickens, but I don't want to have to, like, take care of them every day or have somebody take care of them while we're gone. So I did a lot of research and on how people were you know, setting up their chicken uh, set up. And I'll just give you one example of the things I found that was a little difficult for me was, uh, for instance, a lot of the books, said the same thing about water. They would all say, well, water's important. You'll have to go out there every day to clean the water that your chickens have pooped all over. They are 24-7 pooping machines. I mean, they're even pooping in their sleep, right? And so when I would read that, and I'd think, oh, God, I, I don't want to work for the chickens. I'm, I'm already working for my dog, you know? So you have to draw a line there. And being a carpenter, being a designer, I decided I need to, like, do a little more research and come up with some ways. There's got to be simple ways, inexpensive ways, to make sure the chickens have enough water and they have enough food and they're safe so that we can go on vacation, for crying out loud. So just uh, back to the water example, I borrowed some ideas that I saw other chicken people using and put them together. One chicken keeper was gathering water for their chickens from a uh, putting a gutter on the chicken coop to catch rainwater and putting it in a cistern. And I said, well, when I saw that, I'm like, well, I'll definitely do that. And then another chicken keeper was supplying water to their chickens from a five-gallon bucket that was attached on a post. So when the chickens came underneath the bucket, there were little uh, livestock nipples, you know, the kind of thing that mm-hmm. like a gerbil would drink out of. And they could tap on those and get their water. 
and it was up too high. They couldn't get up there to poop on it, and it wasn't making a muddy mess, and they couldn't scratch because chickens are just scratching all day, scratching the ground and swinging mm-hmm. debris everywhere, and so they couldn't pile debris in, in and on the waterer. And so I just put those two things, and it worked really well. So every time it rains, the waterer gets refilled, uh, and the chickens can't make a mess. And in the six, seven years we've had chickens, I've probably had to refill the waterer maybe 10 or 12 times just because it's going to rain often. And, you know, I'm on the East Coast, so it rains often enough. But before the five-gallon bucket is empty, the rain fills it back up for me. Things like that have made it so that we can go on vacation or even when we're here at home we are just able to uh, not have to worry about the chickens very much, you know, because you get busy sometimes and, and we'll realize the only thing we've done is go out and gather a few eggs and we haven't really, you know, had time to play with the chickens, but they have their water, they have their food and, and they live on and happily. Sure. Oh, that's brilliant. That, that's really awesome. You went out and you wrote articles about this and then yeah. had that converted into a book. What led you to, to make a book out of it? Well, let, let me tell you about the, uh, the column first, because that's sure. the beginning of the story, really, is that uh, – so I set up all these things because I love my wife, basically. You know, I want her to be happy, and uh, mm-hmm. she wanted chicken. And so I puzzled through all these different aspects of it, and things were set up, and she got the chickens. And a year, year and a half later, I'm looking back and thinking, man, this is – we spend so little time – fucking over the chickens, doing any work, you know, as uh, I talked to my wife and she agreed with me that we would spend less time doing chores than we spend cooking the eggs, <laughs> which is not really an exaggeration at all. Uh, so I was, uh, so things have gone even better than I had imagined in, uh, when I was trying to set all this up. So it went better than I imagined, and uh, I knew that uh, there was magazines about chickens you know, Backyard Poultry is another good one, and Chicken's Magazine. Mm-hmm. And so I pitched uh, the idea of doing a column that would be called Coop Builder to the editor of Chicken's Magazine, Roger Stipe, who's uh, been uh, a very good editor. So I've been working with him for, oh, my God, like five, six years now. So every other month I would send in a article about Coop, you know, so it might be an article about the fence or an article about the gate or the nest boxes or the roof for the coop, or space under the coop, or all these different pieces that you have to figure out. The habitat. So I'm, a, I'm a science guy, so and I work mm-hmm. with wildlife, so you know, and so we would always talk about habitat. And we realized, gosh, it's the chicken habitat is the big thing that most of the chicken books don't really talk about. They talk about different breeds of chicken, and they talk about, you know, what to feed them, and when they get sick, what to do. But there was would be very little useful information about the habitat. That's what I was writing about in the column, and after doing that for a few years, I, I realized, wow, I have a lot of material here, and started pitching a proposal to do a book on chicken habitat, and the folks at Story went for it, and they're the biggest of the publishers that do gardening and homesteading books, mm-hmm. so I was really glad to be with them. It's been just one of the best working experiences of my life, dealing with the staff of Story Publishing, and so as you probably know, working on books, it's a long-term slow process and <laughs> finally the book came out in december so it's been out just a little over six months mm-hmm. uh and just a few months ago i had an email from my editor with lots of exclamation points all over it and she said that the first printing of thirteen thousand copies had already been spoken for in, in the first month wow you know spoken for meaning you know barnes and noble and amazon had ordered yeah. them all that doesn't mean you know every copy had been bought Mm-hmm. But it meant that every copy was out on a bookshelf somewhere, and mm-hmm. so they were going to have to like do a second printing much more quickly than they thought. So I was really glad to hear that. So I think this book is filling a niche that had been empty, really. I mean, there are a few books about chicken coops, and, but nothing that really covers the whole waterfront of chicken habitat. Mm-hmm. You know, everything about you know, having the right kind of pen and the right kind of coop. And uh, I even have a design in there that I haven't seen anything resembling it anywhere else where um, you could build your chicken coop pretty much almost for free out of pallets. Mm. And so the background of that is that I grew up working class. So I grew up with people that you know didn't have a lot of money. There were people poorer than us. And I still work around poor people a fair amount in my line of work as a landscaper. In designing all these elements, 
for this chicken habitat. I knew there were people that didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of skill, and I felt like, well, they should be able to have chicken soup. So everything I did was geared with those people in mind, worked out a plan. I actually met a woman who was a first grade teacher, and she wanted to have a chicken coop for two dozen chickens because uh, she didn't make a lot of money as a teacher, wanted, but she had some land, wanted to have a little mini farm. And we were chatting at the seed and seed store where I met her, and she said she wanted this kind of coop, and but she had, like, no budget. And I said, well, I've got a plan for you. I want to build a coop out of pallets. And I've been looking for somebody just like you. So I told her to take her pickup truck, get 16 pallets, and I would meet her at her farm with my tools. Her dad and I, and, uh, and her name was Katie, and mm-hmm. the three of us, in an afternoon, we had put in a foundation of cinder blocks. We had built a floor made out of pallets and plywood. We had built the walls out of pallets, and we had framed the roof for this chicken coop in like three hours. Wow. <laughs> which is, yes, yes. And it went pretty painted. There was very little cutting to be done because the pallets already, you know, you've got a big, uh, it, it's basically the floor framing and the wall framing, the roof mm-hmm. framing is like made. It's good to go. Mm-hmm. And all you need is a drill with some three-inch screws made for outdoor use. And zoom, 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 you know, you're putting the thing together and it's up. So she, uh, I had to, um, I wasn't able to stay any longer than that, but she and her father, cut up some pallets and to make the siding and one of her one of her students uh their parents are roofers and had some scrap uh, metal roofing that they donated to the project and so she was pretty quickly able to finish this chicken coop for like very little expense and so that's the kind of that's and she was exactly the kind of person i had in mind in designing these things that uh it's not hard to take care of chickens but all the the habitat can be expensive if you do it the way a lot of chicken books describe it. So yeah. I want to bring the cost down and the, and the skill level down. So somebody who can operate a, a drill, you know, a power drill, can mm-hmm. pretty much put all these things together. The proof is in the pudding, and uh, I hear from lots of people that they're building their chicken habitat using the Hentopia book and are very happy with it. So, so I'm very happy. No, oh, wow. That that's that's really great. That's gotta be pretty satisfying as a as an author. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you enjoyed the process of writing it. Are do you plan on writing any more books in the future? Oh yeah. I have um uh several books in the works. Uh I I am gonna do a follow up book to Hentopia. It's probably a couple of years away mm-hmm. because I wanna perfect some of the things, but it's gonna be called the working title is Hentopia Cafe. <laughs> because uh, I've been finding lots of ways to feed the chickens without having to rely solely on chicken feed from the feed and feed store. Oh, so we use wow. or, Yeah, right. We use organic feed because if you're not using organic feed, then basically you're feeding grains to your chickens that uh, herbicide has been played on because you probably mm-hmm. know now that uh, Roundup Ready feeds are the thing. Lots of grains and corn... Uh, and soybeans are being grown. They're uh, genetically engineered, so mm-hmm. the farmer can spray herbicide over the whole field, but the herbicide only kills the weeds. But the food crops still have herbicide on them and in them. And so mm-hmm. when you're buying chicken feed that isn't organic, you're buying feed that has herbicide in it, and you're eating the eggs, and so those chemicals get passed on down the line. So the organic feed, obviously, is more expensive, mostly mm-hmm. because there's so few mills that are uh, generating organic feed. And so a lot of the price you're paying is the freight cost of shipping a long way. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything per se about the uh, feed itself. It's just that there's so many fewer organic feed mills. So once more organic feed mills come online, the price of organic chicken feed should come down. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but e- either way, chickens are like us. They like a variety of foods. They like to have some bugs. They like to have some greens and grass and things like that. This book will address all those issues, how to uh, grow red worms to feed your chickens or mealworms, grow <laughs> mealworms in your basement. I'm starting a little mini farm for mealworms. Oh, wow. You know, how to do even simpler things, like when you mow your lawn, use a bagging attachment uh, for a little little while, you know, fill up the bag one time and then dump that in the pan and the chickens have a big pile of grass to eat and they will just like plow through that real quickly. 
So lots of little ideas like that. A friend of mine has uh, Japanese beetles. We're getting into her garden. So she set up a Japanese beetle trap and brought me the dead Japanese beetles that I gave to the chickens and they ate those and they loved that. So oh. there's all these other things you can do. Uh, and oh, and when we, I'll give you another example. When we go out to eat, I try not to embarrass my wife, but sometimes it happens when I tell the waiter at the end. I say, yeah, I, can I have a go box? Because if I don't eat it, my chickens will. <laughs> and so, you know, so they'll, you know, so like pork bones, steak bones, they'll pick them clean because they like oh. meat. Yeah, exactly. They're not vegetarians. They want the meat. And so any mm-hmm. kind of scraps from when we eat out or scraps in from our own kitchen, that goes to the chicken. And so that book, Hentopia Cafe, I'm, I'm not near ready with that. I am writing a column for Chickens Magazine, a new column that's called uh, Chicken Feed Cafe. And mm-hmm. so those columns will be the first draft of that book. So that's in the works. Uh, one that I'm about, a proposal I'm about to send is for a mushroom ID book, edible mushroom ID mm-hmm. book. Because one of the things, one of the, one of the hobbies that I that make my living with is uh, foraging for mushrooms. Ah. So I think there's a real need for the kind of book I have in mind there, but I don't want to go astray from Hentopia. But uh, I have a number of uh, book ideas that are turning away. And, but right now I'm just focused on Hentopia. I've been, uh, like, I, like I said at the beginning, I've been speaking at all the Mother Earth news fairs, or almost all of them. Uh, over this summer, I've probably got six or eight events in North Carolina and Virginia where I'll be speaking about Hentopia and it's uh, picking up a lot of speed. It's picking up a lot of momentum, and I'm very happy about that. Looking forward to hearing what people have to say uh, who've been using the book and getting feedback on that. Hopefully, there'll be some people in uh, Oregon who've already seen the book and can tell me what their thoughts are on it. I would, I would look forward to hearing people uh, getting people's feedback on it. No, absolutely. In fact, I got a copy of the book myself, and my wife is so excited because we've been talking about getting some chickens in our new property that we're just now working on getting, and so can't wait to try out some of the methods that you have set out there. Yeah, so, oh, I'm glad to hear that, yes. On top of that, it's a beautifully put-together book. I mean, just honestly, oh I, 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 was, I was amazed when I saw it. I'm like, wow, so yes. much time and effort was yes. put into making this book yes. entertaining to look at and useful. I mean, with the diagrams yes. and the photos and everything in there, it's very well done. Yes, thank you. Yeah, the I got a shout out to uh, Deb Burns, who's my uh, editor on this. She was great to work with, and uh, the photographer uh, Liz was a terrific experience working with her. But I really got to give a shout out to the book designer. Her name is Michaela Jeb. I, I paid Michaela the best compliment I could think of paying to a fellow designer. I confess that one of my habits, good or bad, as a designer, is that when I look at other people's work, design, you know, something that's been designed, whether it's graphic or whether it's mm-hmm. furniture or a garden or anything, I look at it, and the first thing my brain does is, well, I would have done that a little differently, or <laughs> I would have done it that way. So I'm always deconstructing and second-guessing other people's work, not in a negative way, but mm-hmm. I'm a designer, so I, I weigh these things. And I told her that when uh, they sent me her design of the cover, of course, I looked at it the way I always look at it, and I could not find anything that I would have changed. I mm. thought every choice she made was brilliant, uh, both on the cover and the interiors. You know, I've had a very good experience with story, and it was very satisfying to work with people who could produce such a beautiful book, because when people are laying out money for a book, you know, what a book costs, it, it should be an awesome book. <laughs> Yeah, and so I I was very happy with the contributions of the other people who um, helped make the make it what it, what it is. I'm very pleased. Oh, that's fabulous! So, and fabulous. So I get plenty of feedback, like like you just gave about that the book is delightful to look at. Yeah. Oh my God! Yes. So thank you for saying that. No, that's great. We're looking at, you're going to be at, like I mentioned before, the Albany, Oregon Mother News Fair, like you've mentioned. I saw that you have two workshops planned. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Yes. So I will be there Saturday and Sunday, I, about midday, both days. I'm forgetting mm-hmm. the time exactly. Midday Saturday and midday Sunday. And for one of those workshops, I will be showing some slideshows of our Hentopia setup here with my the chicken coop that has a pagoda roof on it, like a Buddhist temple. Mm-hmm. That was my wife's request. And I'll also be doing a little demonstration. I'll have two volunteers come up at each workshop. And in one workshop, 
the volunteers and I, we will each make a waterer. So I'll show how simple it is. I, I normally ask for the two least handy people in the room to come assist me. So to make <laughs> the point that this is all very low-tech, low-do-it-yourself projects, and so two people come up and help me make waterers, you know, with a five-gallon bucket so that those two volunteers take theirs home, and then the one I make, I give to somebody in the audience. And then mm-hmm. in the other workshop, we'll make what I call a vending machine feeder, which it's also made out of a five-gallon bucket, but it works kind of like a vending machine because one of the problems with the conventional feeder chickens is that the feed is open to the elements. So if, so if it's rain and the wind is blowing, you know, your chicken feed can get wet or it's closed so that when the chickens are scratching around, the feeder gets covered up with chicken debris, with, uh, you know, whatever mud and muck and, you know, twigs and everything that the chickens are scratching around. And then also if any rodents get in, which is going to happen. There's going to be some, they're going to find some, some gap somewhere, and they are not a threat to your chickens, but they will eat up your chicken food. Mm-hmm. And so the design I came up with, I modified a design that I found online, and I gave the guy credit for it in the book, but I'm forgetting the uh, link now. But in the book, you can see what he came up with. And so I modified it a little bit. So it's a, basically it's a five-gallon bucket. It's attached to a post so, or attached to the side of the coop, so it's up off the ground. So it's got a lid so the chicken feed stays dry and critters can't get in the bucket. But there's a couple of eye bolts hanging out of the bottom of the bucket, and each eye bolt has a champagne cork attached to it. Mm-hmm. And so the chickens come up, and they tap on the champagne cork, and it makes the eye bolt swing back and forth, and pellets of food come out. It's like, a, you know, like you hit the button on a vending machine, yeah. and, and the candy bar drops down. And so that way they can tap on it, food comes out, and they just eat until they're full and then they go away. And there isn't a lot of chicken food, chicken feed exposed to the elements or available for vermin to get to. And so it's a big saver. It saves on a little, on a lot of waste and it makes it easy, you know, because a five gallon bucket will hold like about 25 pounds of feed. And if you have a lot of chickens, you can set up several buckets or you could use like a bigger container, you know, basically have your eyeballs hanging out of a, plastic garbage can or something that's you know stood up on some cinder blocks so the chickens can get under it. Mm-hmm. There's different ways to do that. But that's, that's what the second workshop will be about is a couple of volunteers. We'll each, uh, the least handy people in attendance, will each make a vending machine feeder and they'll take theirs home and I'll make a third one and give it to somebody in the audience. And so, yeah, so it's pretty interactive and I'm always um, a big fan of taking questions as we go rather than waiting mm-hmm. until the end because I'd rather just like ride on people's enthusiasm or, you know, because if one person has a question about something I'm doing or describing, I'm sure other people are feeling the same way. So I'd rather Mm. take questions right then and get people satisfied that they are learning a lot. So I usually end up having a pretty good time. And and at the end, I always ask, you know, was this helpful? And I normally get a very good response from folks. So uh, so I'm looking forward to it. I know it'll be a lot of fun for me. And I think that uh, people attending will have a good time. And and uh, have a few laughs and learn some things. And some folks will get home with some free waterers or a feeder. Yeah, so, that's fabulous. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to pause the conversation right there. What you're listening to right now is a special edition podcast. These episodes all have to do with the Mother Earth News Fair in Albany, Oregon of 2019. At the time I'm recording this, we have learned so much about how to take advantage of events, and I want you to be able to use this information in your own business. Go to brianjpombo.com secrets. We are going to be putting out helpful materials on how you can use events to grow your business. When you go to this page, you will either see our latest programs, or if you make it there early enough, you will see an email address capture page. Put in your email address, and we will be sure and update you as soon as we get these out there. You're not going to want to miss this. If you get in early enough, you can get a special deal. These are principles that never go away. These programs will be based on the experience of people who have written books, spoken at the events, or exhibited there, talking about how to use events, books, and speaking, all to build your business. That's B-R-I-A-N-J-P-O-M-B-O dot com slash S-E-C-R-E-T-S. BrianJPombo.com slash secrets. And now, back to the conversation. 
from your perspective, what do you get out of this? You talked about kind of what the audience is going to walk away with. What do you get out of doing these? Well, I love to talk, to be honest. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I get to promote this book. And so the more people are buying, learning about the book and then buying the book, because Mother Earth News will have a, essentially a bookshop set up at each fair, and so mm-hmm. people can buy these books at a 20% discount. They're the ones from Story anywhere, at least a oh, wow. 20% discount. Yeah. So the more people are buying the books, the more money I make when it comes time for the publisher to send me a royalty check. So obviously, sure. you know, financial benefit. <laughs> but also, just I'm really proud of what I've done in this book in terms of just bringing the cost and the difficulty of having chickens way down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been politically active since I was 18, and we don't need to talk about politics, but... I'm motivated, always been motivated to be politically active to help people have a better life. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm doing work that isn't literally political, like making gardens for people, I'm still focused on what can I be doing here that isn't just, you know, making me money is good and everybody mm-hmm. needs to do that. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But what am I doing that's helping these people, helping my clients, helping my readers have a better life? So that's part of the satisfaction for me. I just want more people to know. About, even if I wasn't getting paid, I'd just be glad for people to know about these things that I've discovered or perfected or enhanced or modified so that they can have chickens. Because a lot of people want to have chickens. A lot of kids want to have chickens. And I think chickens are a good thing for kids, you know, just to learn about yeah. responsibility. You know, because one farmer said, if you have livestock, there will also be dead stock, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so kids need to learn about, you know, mortality and uh, that this life is not forever. And you want to make sure that you are making good use of your time here. And the best way for a child to understand that is with somebody other than a family member dying, you know? So mm-hmm. the will eventually, you know, get weak or get sick or, you know, a predator might get them if you're letting them free range. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's a hazard. Um, but I, I address some of the issues around that in the book. Chickens, there's livestock, there will be dead stock. And that's a good lesson for kids. And for some adults, that's also a good lesson. That we're not yeah. able, that this is, this is not your practice life. But you'll get to do it better <laughs> sometime down the road, which is the one you got. And so taking care of animals is a good way to confront those otherwise difficult issues. So that's what I'm excited about is... Um, you know, sharing what I've learned, sharing what I've figured out, and you know what other people have to say, finding out what their experiences are, and uh, and just and being able to go to the fair. Even if I wasn't presenting at the fair, I've been to Mother Earth's fairs before in North North Carolina, and they are just a very fun event. It's like uh, I mean, the, the only thing that's missing is like the the, the fun ride, the uh, the carousel <laughs> and, the, and the Ferris wheel. And yeah. I think I think if Mother News added that. Boy, I would it would really blow up in a good way. But it's <laughs> it's it's like an old time fair without yeah. the ride. You know, there's yeah. livestock there. There's all these different breeds of chickens and different amazing different breeds of cattle and horses and sheep and uh, all these vendors selling you know solar ovens or things to use to ferment your food and uh, just all kinds of you know mushroom guys usually there selling you mushrooms, edible mushrooms, or medicinal mm-hmm. mushrooms, or how to grow your own mushrooms, you know, all these things, all these garden tools. It's just like a gas going there and seeing what everybody has to offer and seeing all the different books, and there's going to be 20 or 30 speakers who are authors talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the material in their books. Lots of people who are speaking are chefs, and they're teaching people how to cook. The thing that's been growing recently in these fairs is the number of people who, speakers who are authors about health and also even about uh, makeup, mm-hmm. like making your own makeup. So you're not putting all these weird chemicals on your skin, but you're using healthy and organic products. So that's a uh, piece of the mother with news fairs that's uh, been changing recently. There's a lot more interest in health and uh, makeup and home remedies and things like that. So it's just a fun event. I hang out the whole two days and have a gas. So I'm hoping people will come and, and enjoy it as much as I do. Oh, I, I can't wait. This is actually going to be my first time attending one of these. All right. Yeah, I, I, I'm getting more and more excited the more people I'm talking to that are either speaking at the event or attending. That's really great to hear from you. Who are you hoping to reach most when you go? Who's the ideal person you're hoping to connect with, either via your speech or in person? You know, in the one sense, everybody, of course. Mm-hmm. But in the other sense, like a lot of Americans, my parents got divorced when mm-hmm. I was when me and my sisters were teenagers. 
dealing with the single mom and the single dad scenario, um, yeah, that makes it, uh, that may be the best thing for the family overall, but it's always a financial hardship, but it's always a hardship in terms of managing time. And, and so that was the kind of what I had in mind, the uh, single parent with some kids, mm-hmm. and parent wants chickens and the kids wants chickens. But, the, but time is scarce, money is scarce. Mm-hmm. And so that's who I was thinking about, you know, and, and nothing against Martha Stewart, because I think she's doing great things, but not everybody has Martha Stewart's budget for yeah. doing chicken, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or the budget of a lot of people who, you know, buy her magazine and stuff. And so I was thinking about them, you know. This, so this is, you know, the way that somebody with very little money and very little skill and few tools or no tools at all can put a lot of this together. So that's mm-hmm. what I was aiming at. And sometimes that's what I see. Oftentimes it's folks who are back to, you know, it's a lot of couples, people have gone back to the land, or like me and my wife, they're doing a little mini farm in the city. Uh, oftentimes, mm-hmm. the people who've been coming are like young people who are in college or just out of college, or maybe like me, uh, they're successful college dropout. They're wanting to get into agriculture or just grow some of their own food, and they want to do chickens, but they they've got you know college debt or whatever. So how can they do chickens without spending a lot of money? It's been a uh, delightful range of people who've been coming to the fairs that where I've been speaking and wanting to know about chickens. Yeah, but like the single parent with not a lot of money and not a lot of time is kind mm-hmm. of who I had in mind. Whenever I was like puzzling through how to do these things or writing my column or working on the book, I was like, okay, how can I simplify this or bring the cost down? What would be the way to like, you know, instead of buying this expensive thing can you make or salvage uh, something less expensive because I have a whole chapter on just on tools and another chapter is just on where to get things inexpensively. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the materials in our, I mean, we're not poor, but we're not rich. And so a lot of the materials in our Hentopia habitat are things that people have cast out on the curb or things that I buy at a metal scrapyard here in town where people are getting rid of uh, metal things. So, like your fencing for your pen. You could buy a mm-hmm. roll of fencing for a few dollars instead of buying it new at the big box store. You could buy metal roofing pretty inexpensively at a metal scrapyard. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, uh, like the original feeder we started out with uh, was, you know, some vintage chicken feeder at a thrift shop. So oh, wow. a lot of these things, when you do have to buy them, a lot of them can be bought pretty cheaply, but, you know, uh, on the street corner, at the curb, I've picked up several dog kennels. I guess people outgrow their dog, you know, or they give away a dog, or the dog has passed away, and so they've got this kennel, and they put it on the street. And I've been scavenging those and giving or selling them to other chicken keepers because we use uh, dog kennels as a way, you know, when we get a new chicken, we might buy a special chicken that, you know, lays like chocolate brown eggs was one example. And you don't want to just throw a new chicken in with the other chickens because they'll peck it to death. You know, mm-hmm. And so we will put the new chicken, or if we have new chicks, we'll put them, when they're ready to go outside, we'll put them inside the kennel, inside the big dog kennel that is inside the pen. And so the new chickens and the old chickens see each other and smell each other and get used to each other. And mm-hmm. I kind of think chickens' memories don't last real long. My suspicion is when you, you put a new chicken or you put some chicks in the kennel, in the pen with the old chickens. After a week or two weeks, I think the old chickens have forgotten that that chick, chicken is new. They come mm-hmm. out and they see it and they're like, yeah, you've, been, you've always been here, right? That's my theory. <laughs> but you need to keep them separate until they get to that point and then you can yeah. let them out and they're just like, oh yeah, we've been pals since day one as far as I can remember. Is, you know, that's what I think their brain is telling them. So I've never paid for a dog kennel for doing that kind of setup because, you know, every few years I found one put out on the corner and they're in good shape and they're designed now so they all fold down flat so they're out of the mm-hmm. way and you don't use them, don't need them. So a lot of materials can be got very cheaply that way, either for free or very little cost. And there's an entire chapter just dedicated to uh, all the different options out there for that that some people may not be aware of. Those are great tips there. That's really good. Uh, the last thing I was going to say on that was that I don't want to – people to get the idea that because I'm advocating things that are free or cheap that your coop is going to be ugly. I'm very focused on the aesthetics. So there's a lot of advice in the book about how to make things look nice or what kind of choices are 
are going to make things look nice without costing more money. And so you can have a pretty nice setup without spending a lot of money. So you're not sacrificing having a good-looking coupe and pen just because you haven't spent a lot of money. It can look good. It can function well. The budget is going to be low, and the demands on your skills can be low. And you've got chickens, and then every day you're eating fresh chicken eggs, and you just can't beat that. Once, you, once you've had fresh backyard chicken eggs, I've talked to many people. Nobody who's had fresh backyard chicken eggs wants to go back to store-bought eggs. Yeah. They, just, they don't look as good. They don't taste as good. They don't cook up as well. It's, just, it's a real big step back. So once you've had backyard chicken eggs, it's just you're, you're in a new, more delightful world of uh, eating. <laughs> For so, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad to hear that you and your wife are going to explore that. Yeah. You will be absolutely. happy, I think. Yeah, and I've gotten chicken eggs from my friends and so forth, but looking to do it ourselves. And it's funny, for all the same reasons you mentioned, we've got little kids right now, and we we want them to be able to experience it. And just yeah. those are really great points that you make. A lot of people in the audience, because a lot of our conversations revolve around not just things within the self-reliance field, but also around the business side of it. So we have a lot of business owners, executives who listen. Do you think it'd be worthwhile for them to plug into this event, both attend, but also to speak or exhibit? You mean to be an exhibitor, have a table at the fair? Sure, sure. Either either have a table or or speak. Mother Earth News does these fairs at half a dozen places around the country, and the uh, so it's a Saturday and a Sunday, and the attendance ranges. And I'm I'm being rough with the numbers here, but the attendance ranges from ten thousand. To 20,000 different ones. I don't know what the attendance will be in Albany, but it's somewhere um, inside the, in between 10 and 20,000 mm-hmm. in the course of two days. So that's a lot of people walking by your, your table, mm-hmm. looking at what you're offering, you know, whatever service or whatever product you're offering. It's also, it could be a good place for people who have food trucks or who set up food tents because that's definitely an opportunity there. And I've had some delicious food at all the fairs I've been to. And there's often, you know, there's just the range of choices is just terrific. And I don't know what we'll have in Albany, but if people are doing a food truck or food tent kind of setup, the fairs are a great opportunity for that. If you're selling any kind of tool or service that a full-time farmer or a hobby farmer or a back, serious backyard gardener or a beginning gardener would be interested in, that would be a real good opportunity to exhibit. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do have some opportunity for people who want to demonstrate things. Like there's, I've seen people who are blacksmiths, and so they'll do little projects showing you how, you know, they forge things. You can learn like that. Uh, So, you know, people who are teaching uh, mushrooms are there, so you can get their brochures and learn how to grow mushrooms or how to identify mushrooms. So all kinds of opportunities for every kind of business. It's the range of businesses. So what else have I seen there? Like, like massage therapists, mm-hmm. well, the exhibitors at these events, the people who have those massage chairs, people who have saunas are going to be there. A lot, some things that you wouldn't expect, but uh, they are finding a lot of exhibitors, uh, a lot of business people are finding that the audience at these events are people who are very focused on their health and are willing to spend some money uh, for uh, products or services that help them have a healthier or happier life, uh, anything around food. There's all kinds of people selling all kinds of spices. There's people selling products for keeping bees and processing honey. Uh, there's people, oof, what have I seen there? There are people who are selling all kinds of baked goods. It, it, the range is pretty amazing. It's pretty surprising, the variety of services and products that people are promoting at uh, these fairs. So if you have a business in Oregon, uh, you would I would highly recommend checking into what Mother Earth News Fairs could do for you, uh, because like I said, it's going to be uh, what is that? Asking you five low five figures is going to be the turnout over mm-hmm. a two day period. So you will get to see a lot of potential customers. That's oh, that's sure. Well, that, that yeah. that's a great 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 point. How did you end up becoming a speaker for these events? Did they find you? Did you find them? How'd that happen? Uh, it goes back to the politics. One of the things you have to do in politics yeah. is get up and speak in front of people. And I remember the very first time I did that, I was like 25 years old. I was speaking at a city council hearing, you know, about some uh, project that was going on. 
and I got it to speak for the first time. I didn't know. I figured, I, you know, I'm comfortable talking, you know, in, at parties and to friends and stuff, and I just can't do that different. I get up, and I'm at the podium, and all the council members turn and look right at me. And suddenly, I'm, I'm reading my statement. I've got it written out. I'm reading my statement, but my voice is quavering. It's like this. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't stop my voice from quavering. But that's how I started, and I didn't die. So I figured, well, I didn't die. So I, I guess I could learn to do this, but I could learn to do it better. And so I became uh, experienced and skilled at public speaking through politics. Eventually became a city council member. I did have to cut off my ponytail, but I, I you know, ran my own campaign and got on city council. But that was like <laughs> when I, 20 some years ago. Uh-huh. And so I'm still politically active, but I started using my speaking skills to offer classes in gardening was how that started. And so local garden centers, uh, people would pay, you know, I would make a little money speaking about, you know, gardening skills. And then I added the mushroom foraging classes and added classes on keeping chickens. So I've been hired by lots of public gardens like Colonial Williamsburg and Lewis Gittner Garden in Virginia and Duke Gardens in North Carolina, lots of places like that. The public gardens, all kinds of garden conferences and farming conferences have hired me to speak. And so I have a pretty good reputation. One of the things that all uh, the publishers like is that they, they want the authors to help do some of the promotion. They can't do it all. Mm-hmm. And so if a author is also good at speaking, they will help. They, so Story helps cover some of my costs. So they are paying the cost to fly me to all of these Mother Earth news fairs. Mm-hmm. Because they know I'll do a good job speaking and promoting the book, and they've also helped me cover the mileage and expenses of speaking at some uh, events in North Carolina and Virginia. And oh, that's great! So, yeah, right. So the so a lot of the speakers are either getting uh, are authors who are getting help from their publisher, or they're doing it on their own dime because it's worthwhile to promote the book. To you know, like I said, it's between ten and twenty thousand people at each one of these things. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely worth an author's time if not their offense, to go and speak to, you know, have, you know, not that you have all 10 or 20,000 people in the room when you're speaking. Normally mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, 50, 100 people, 200 people, 300 people at the most probably. But, uh, but the word gets around, you know, when those people hear about you, then they tell their friends and their people in their chicken group or whatever, or in their community garden. And so you're, you're, you know, putting the pebble in the pond and the ripples go out. Yeah. And so that's how I look at it. Even if I, on, the, on occasion, I'll have an event and there's like 10 people and it's like, it's a little disappointing, but it's like, I don't let it bother me. It's like, okay, those 10 people, they all know five or 10 people mm-hmm. who will be interested in this topic. And they'll say, oh yeah, I heard Frank Hyman speak and you should get his book, et cetera, So, so it's always worth my while to speak about it. Yeah. Well, that's and great. I have time. And yeah, yeah, and one of my rules of public speaking is that, I mean, it's important that I give people what they want, but my primary rule is that I need to be having a good time. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting to tell the stories I want to tell, and I'm getting to make jokes and make people laugh, and that makes me happy. So that's my priority. And I figure, hey, if I'm having a good time, then the audience will be having a good time. And it's a lot easier to learn stuff when you're, when you're awake and alive and having a chuckle benefit to somebody zoning on. I have to tell program managers who are hiring me to speak for a conference or something that I'm happy to be the speaker that they put in in the after lunch slot. I tell them I'll wake people up and say, often I get the 1 o'clock or one thirty speaker slot. Now, that's fine with me. Yeah. I know I can get people laughing and they weren't you know, like dozing off after lunch. <laughs> so it's just, to me, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any logistical tips for other people that would like to do the same thing, maybe like to be speakers in the future and so forth? I mean, you're traveling all the way across country for the Oregon event. Yes. So my advice to people who want to be speakers is practice is always the issue. I've been able to – I make my living, like I said, from hobbies, which is up to 10 now, and, you know, carpentry, foraging, writing, et cetera, et cetera. But the key thing is that part of the reason I'm able to do that is because I know that whenever I start on something new, I'm going to be pretty terrible at it. You know, like the story I told you about my first speaking event at a public hearing, and my voice was shaking. And so I know I'm going to be terrible, and I don't let that bother me. That's the important thing if somebody wants to become a speaker, if they're not already doing that, is just to be comfortable with that. First time you do it, it's not going to go great. Second time you do it, it'll be a little bit better. 
And the third time you do it, it's like you're starting to get comfortable, and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, Brian's a good speaker. You should get him, you know? <laughs> and uh, But that's the key is you just got to power through those difficult beginnings. Find some level of comfort with being uncomfortable at the beginning. And uh, after you go through it enough, you learn you learn, you learn a little bit the first, second, and third time, and then you're off and running, and you're learning a little more, and you're getting some feedback that's helpful from different people if you're willing to listen. Uh, you just get better by doing it, really. I mean, there mm-hmm. are some tricks of the trade, and there are books on public speaking, you know, and the same goes for writing. There's books on how to write. You can take classes. But really, it's you just gotta you gotta put your butt in a chair and then write and know that the first time or the beginning of your journey as a writer, it's not gonna it's just not gonna be very good. You know, it may mm-hmm. not you know it might be it might even be terrible, but it might be okay. But it's gonna get better the more you do it. There's just no substitute. And then I'm sure you would, the same with your line of work. You know, mm-hmm. doing a podcast or radio show or something. The first time you do it, it's it's a little bit of a stretch, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. You're not like having to think about everything so much. You can just be in the moment, and the speaking and the writing is just like that. The more you do it, the easier it comes. One thing I would say in both cases, both for speakers and for writers, your speaking and your writing will get better if you spend time meeting best writers, and mm-hmm. you'll find yourself slowly internalize how that really good, how really good writing sounds in your in your mind's ear, so to speak. And mm-hmm. with speakers, hearing good speakers, you'll, you know, that's, I definitely pay more attention now. I was watching John Oliver the other night. He does that show last week tonight, sort of a mm-hmm. yeah. you know, humorous talk show, new show. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching him and I'm, and I'm, you know, noticing the little where he stops and where he starts and how he finesses, you know, the, the sound of a sentence. And I, and I looked at my wife and I said, I could do that. <laughs> because yeah. I was paying attention to him, like how he was doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. I wasn't just being passively enjoying it. So if you want to be a speaker, watch other speakers, not passively, but actively watch them and see what are they doing? Or when you think they could have done this something and they chose not to, why did they choose not to, you know, use a, that kind of punchline or something? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what I would say for people who are wanting to become a speaker or an author or anything. Power through those difficult first times. Don't be, don't be discouraged and persevere and keep working on it. Other people who do well the thing that you want to do or read their read really good writing and internalize yeah. their, you know, like some piece, some person that came up with the phrase, fake it to the mimic, kind of is weird sounding, but it's kind of, there's some truth in it. Mimic what, other, mimic what the good people are doing because that's how they got where they are. They mimic somebody ahead of them. So. Sure thing. Well, that, that, that's, that's all really good points. Uh, Frank, yeah. just overall, this has been a great conversation. What can mm-hmm. listeners do who'd be interested in finding out more about your book and so forth? So to find out more about the book by uh, going to their computer and Googling Hentopia, and they would either find story publishing website, webpage on my book, where they can read some of the blurbs on the back, like uh, my editor at Chickens Magazine says that I'm the cruise den master of poultry, whatever that means, but that sounds pretty good. And so, or you can get to my website, which is hentopiacoops.com, and that gives you a little more background about me. Uh, as far as buying the books, uh, definitely check out uh, your local bookshops and support them, uh, but you can also buy it online from different vendors. You can look at it, you can read the reviews. I'm getting good reviews on Goodreads and on Amazon sites. Uh, to read reviews of the book and find out a little more that way. And that would keep you pretty far along to like learning more about Pentopia, whether it's the right thing to you. All right. Frank Hyman, thanks so much for being on the Off the Grid Biz podcast. We look forward to meeting you over in Albany. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it also, Brian. Thank you so much for having, having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. Wow. It was great chatting with Frank. He's got a really great story, great cause behind his philosophy of life. And you can just tell that kind of wraps everything together. His initial story just to begin with, his wife wanting chickens and him just wanting to be able to go on vacation for two weeks at a time. I mean, it's relatable. It's kind of funny. And it shows how he got into the entire concept of chicken habitats. But overall, he has a really big cause 
it's related back to his political views, but it's also tied to his entire life on his childhood and growing up, not having as much as other people and just having to figure out a way around it. And other people, they don't know how simple it is to do some of these things. And all it takes is a little ingenuity. He doesn't mind being able to take that to them. I think that's really great. It ties in his entire life story into his whole way of teaching. On our last episode, we spoke with Deborah Neiman. And the point that I brought up then was that she goes through this organic process of learn, do, teach. It's very inspiring. And he has a very clear idea of who his ideal customer is, who his ideal reader is, who he is most wanting to impact by his speeches. That's a very important thing to have because then you can know how successful you are. I love how he was talking about willing to be terrible. In other words, willing to make mistakes, willing to be bad until you can be good, getting out there and doing, doing, doing until you can get better. And he ties that back to his ability to make a living from his hobbies. His point about actively watching and listening to others, just being able to watch a TV show and being able to watch them and see how they deliver a line and directly relate that back to how he does speeches, how he tells stories. That's an important point that most people don't think about when they go into teaching mode. If you're going to be teaching your customer base, if you're going to be teaching people one-on-one through classes, It's important to see how other people do it and to be able to adapt their style or see things that you would never do and that you're going to steer away from. Being able to take that into account, that's an important lesson. Frank just has this concept of putting on engaging presentations, hands-on, very similar to what Andrew Perkins was talking about in the beginning of our series two episodes ago. And at the same time, he keeps everything very light. It's all about having fun with him. Did you notice that? His primary rule is I need to be having a good time. He said that about speaking, but I bet that applies to his entire life. So I think if you apply that to your life, having fun, about making sure that you at least have a good time, you're going to be 90% of the way there, and that's a great thing to walk away with. Join us again on the next Off the Grid Biz Podcast, brought to you by the team at brianjpombo.com, helping successful but overworked entrepreneurs transform their companies into dream assets. That's B-R-I-A-N-J-P-O-M-B-O. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Off The Grid Biz podcast, go to offthegridbiz.com slash contact. Those who appear on the show do not necessarily endorse my beliefs, suggestions, or advice, or any of the services provided by our sponsor. Our theme music is Cold Sun by Dell. Our executive producer and head researcher is Sean E. Douglas. I'm Brian Pombo, and until next time, I wish you peace, freedom, and success.